your host and as usual i'm joined today by jesse parker humphreys and abdul abdullah and we have luckily another special guest for this episode an analysis expert that puts us to shame really author of zonal marking and the mixer we have the athletic uk's brilliant analyst michael cox with us today how are you michael uh, very well thank you for inviting me and i uh, really enjoyed the last couple of podcasts uh particularly the preview for the champions league court final because i watch a lot of wsl i don't know so much about the european side so you really prepared me well for what i thought was a pretty good day of action it was, I think, a brilliant day of action and, and particularly the, the game that we're going to be talking about. You know, a quick recap of yesterday. We saw the first legs of the Women's Champions League quarterfinals. Barcelona beat Manchester City 3-0. Chelsea managed a 2-1 win over Wolfsburg. And yet another Lyon penalty gave them a marginal 1-0 win over PSG. And the high-flying Bayern Munich cruised to a 3-0 win over Rosengard. And... You know, we're going to start with the biggest match of the day. We're going to go in order, really, but it was arguably the best match of the day. You know, Barcelona managed a 3-0 win over Man City. And just because I'm a Barcelona fan, maybe I was a bit more nervous for that game than, than most people. You know, I was I was with my Barcelona jersey and I was really nervous because I know that Man City are capable of, you know, putting up a good match against them. But... Asisia Oshuala scored the opener. Mariona Caldente smashed home a penalty that, that sealed that two-goal advantage. And then Jenny Hermoso rounded off the scoring, who else but Spain's all-time leading goal scorer. And on the other side, Chloe Kelly did have a chance to put Man City back in the match, but Sandra Paños came up with a huge save, as you mentioned, Michael, earlier. It's, it looks a lot better when it's put over the post. And... There is a lot to talk about here. Michael, you wrote an analysis piece on this for The Athletic UK, and, and I loved it for the mere reason that you said a lot of things that a lot of English media wouldn't dare to say against Manchester City. Um, so I really did appreciate that bit. But there is there is a few quotes that I, I took up because I really did like them. But the one that, that stood out to me that that's going to kind of give you a, a space to explain what you meant by that. City looked like a poor imitation of Barcelona. You want to expand what you meant on that? Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it just feels to me like City as a club, not just the women's section, not just the men's section, but they've kind of modelled themselves on Barcelona. I think that's obvious by the, the people they've got in their hierarchy and just the way that they play football. I mean, I think when Taylor came in, he was like, we are going to play 4-3-3, which is, you know, it's, it's not like it's an unconventional formation, but it's just, it's one of those things that people say when they haven't really been influenced by Barcelona. And I mean, City have been playing really good football in recent weeks, there's no question about that, but there was just some things that Barcelona did that I just thought were at another level to city in terms of the movement and the, the positioning and that's I think that's really what it all the key thing you know Barcelona whether whether you're talking about this women's side or the, the classic Barcelona way the passing works because the positioning movement is so good the pressing works because the positioning movement is so good and I just thought in in certain areas city were I thought they were second best by a long way really and obviously they could have scored a couple of goals I mean I thought him was brilliant down the left but I mean, it could they Barcelona could have been out of sight by half time, really, couldn't they? It, it could have been a, a heavier scoreline. But yeah, I was I was mainly impressed by Barcelona more than I was, you know, would be critical of City. I just thought they played brilliantly, Barcelona. Yeah, that is fair to say. I did say I think in the TV part, it's you know Barcelona and Man City play a very similar style of play with that four three three formation, with that that holding midfielder, with the more playmaking midfielder, and then you have the attacking base midfielder. 
And it was supposed to be a very similar style of play, but, I, you know, just straightforward, Barcelona did it better. And Barcelona have been doing it better for quite some time now. And going back to the art, uh, to your article, Michael, one of the most intriguing aspects, as you mentioned, of this Barcelona side is their fluidity and movement on and off the ball. Note players interchange positions seamlessly throughout the course of the match in any match that you watch them play. And you highlighted focusing on Mariona, who drifted from the left side of the pitch to the right side and just seamlessly picked up a pass on that right wing without, you know, the defenders not really knowing what to do when she changed her position. How impressed were you by this aspect of their game? You know, how important was it to get the better of City like they did? Yeah, I, mean, I thought she was really good. There were various players that played well, but I thought, yeah, the, the, her movement and her kind of variation of positioning, when she was when she drifted over to that side, it almost felt like, you know, she still was happening out on that side with Esme Morgan, who, whenever I've seen her before, is a really good player, but just came up against, a, you know, Hanson was in really good form and she was getting so tied to her that it felt like Mariona had space to move in behind. But I think there was... There was various things you could highlight about how good their positioning was. And they just seemed to drag City out of shape quite often, really. I know Horton was out and that can cause problems, but it's not the first time that Green was played centre-back. I've seen City a few times and she's played there. And it just, yeah, it just felt like City were were getting a real test and a real lesson from a, a side who, you know, like we said, I think they want to replicate in some ways. And I think City obviously have, in some positions, Certainly very comparable players and in some positions maybe better players, but just the cohesion for me was on a different level. It looked like one side was was really playing as individuals at times. Um, and when they did that through Hemp and to a certain extent through Kelly, they, they looked all right. But I don't think that can compete uh, with a side that is just on, everyone's on the same wavelength like Barcelona were. I mean, it was the first time I've watched them this season. I, I must admit, I haven't seen any t- Spanish domestic games. I mean, you guys really hyped them up, especially you, Alex. So I had like quite high standards for what I was about to watch. But hey, it is. I mean, did they disappoint? Yeah, yeah, no, completely. It was it was great football, and I mean, the midfield control and, and the way that they played out from the back. It was it was just really slick, and I, I really enjoyed watching the game. And like I say, like obviously for the domestic, we're coming at it from a British perspective, so it was kind of about City and their their failings. Were Extent, but my my overall takeaway from that was that Barcelona are a really really good team. I, I think I, I was at the the final in twenty was it twenty nineteen when they lost four one to Lyon and um, they felt like quite a it was a good team but they felt like quite a, I mean Lyon won that game within twenty minutes or something but they to me they seem to have gone up a, a, a couple of levels since then they seem to me like they could really challenge for and, and win the, the Champions League this time around. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from, from that 4-1 final, you know, every interview, I mentioned that in, in the last pod, every interview they do, they they say we lost the Champions League final, now we need to avenge ourselves. But and the biggest takeaway for me between Barcelona and Man City is not the overall style of play, but I think Barcelona are are individually superior to Man City. And on top of that individual superiority, they play a lot better together. And I think the opening goal of this match showed that it was a, a cross-in from Caroline Gramhansen, who had a field day with the City defense yesterday. Uh, it was a it was a free kick from her, loose ball in the box. And instead of panicking, Mariona simply just tossed the ball up for, for Asisia Oshala at the top of the box and she slaughtered home 
probably the hardest um, shot she had on the match and she just nailed that completely. So I think that that says a lot, but you know, this was always supposed to be a good match. It was always supposed to be a well fought out battle, both physically and tactically. But Jesse, did this game go as you expected it to, you know, especially with the absence of Seb Houghton, maybe not as bad, but that also means that there's an absence of Alex Greenwood has left back and Esme Morgan had to step in there. You know, Demi Stokes was there when she's not fully fit. And really, we did see a lot of Barcelona attack down that wing. Was this what you expected? Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't expect Barcelona to be quite as dominant as they were. And I do think from City's perspective, there were just a number of players who looked like their heads were totally gone. Like, I think Sam Mewis had a passing accuracy of like 59% across the game and like all season she's averaged about 75%. So just like players who just seem to have like just lose like any concentration and I don't know whether something I thought was interesting is you know we talk about Barcelona going to that final in 2019 and you know they they do have a side who have a lot of experience playing in this competition and City have that experience but I thought it was interesting that Kira Walsh was the only player who started the semi-final City were in uh, in 2017 and this game um, and there were other players from that side but that that was like Steph Horton and George Stanway who didn't who didn't play and then I also thought the other thing was that some of Taylor's decisions were a bit strange you know I know Demi Stokes has been out for a while but he obviously brought her on for the second half so she was clearly always fit enough to play 45 minutes I know she also then gave penalty away but I, when Stokes came on City initially at least looked surer at, at that left back position so I thought that was a bit of an odd decision not to start her and then you know for City it felt so key that they could look to pick up an away goal just to, to have some kind of foothold in this game and Taylor kind of had them by the end playing this strange like 4-4-2 with Stanway and Lavelle up front which is something that I've never seen City play and really didn't work at all and you know yeah Lauren looked at me and thought that if they could have got the ball to kind of Chloe Kelly and had that kind of penetration on the right having those two players like running at Barcelona right to the end of the game I think chance of getting something from this so I did kind of just feel like it really like showed that maybe Gareth Taylor hadn't quite grasped how to play at this level you know Barcelona as we mentioned individual talent is ridiculous you started Mariona and Caroline Graham Hansen on the wing and then Caroline Graham Hansen came off and Lika Martins came on I mean that depth is ridiculous but Looking at the midfield, this was the battle of arguably the best midfield trios in Europe at the moment. Alexia Puteas is my favorite player at the moment just because I think she is brilliant beyond words. And a lot of people don't really appreciate that because she she's not. I mean, she is a, a really good goal scorer. She has, she's sixth in the league right now. It was Alexia Puteas, Aitana Bonmati and Patri Haro who are all La Masia graduates who all have instilled that same style of play with each other and have been playing together for a few years now. And they play together on the, on the nat- national team as well. And I think you saw that yesterday, how good they understand each other. And then you're going up directly against Kira Wash, Caroline Weir and Sam Mewis, who have been outstanding the season so far together. Michael, what did Barcelona do so well yesterday that they were able to nullify that Manchester City midfield? Um, in terms of nullifying it, I think I think the pressure was really good, wasn't it? Particularly when they lost the ball. I thought they crowded around City's midfielders really quickly. I think Muris had, I mean, I thought she really struggled, actually. I mean, earlier in the day, I think it was earlier in the day, I'd, I'd read, um, 
you know, ESPN's rundown of the best players in the world and she was number one. And I was a little bit surprised thinking, well, I know she's a really good player. I didn't realize she was the best player in the world. I'm going to watch her really closely in this game. And um, that that was a mistake in in, uh, in terms of supporting what ESPN were putting forward because, yeah, she, she's a great player, but she she almost looked off the pace, I thought. But I thought, you know, obviously with Barcelona, it's, it's primarily about what they do on the ball. And I thought they just, they did everything well, whether it was dropping a midfielder into the bat to play out or I thought... Uh, Puteas was was taking out positions that you wouldn't necessarily expect of a player in in that role. And essentially, she was going behind again into that inside right channel where there seemed to be a lot of space. There was a couple of cutback opportunities. It was just one of those one of those performances where it felt fluid. But I think if you really look, if you really break it down, it was actually it was actually quite structured. It was Barcelona know what's going on. You know, when you have those kind of classic Barcelona sides, it's it's not random movements it's not instinctive movements it's, it's very pre-programmed and i think uh they just seem really really comfortable in, in the system and i was really impressed actually with with ashwalo up front in terms of her movement i thought that was a another difference between the sides because i mean i think i think ellen white in the box her movement is really like her constant runs what you know to, to the near post is why she scores so many goals but i thought Barcelona just had more in terms of you know they're sending forward, dragging dragging a centre back out, and and players exploiting that space. It just felt, again, it just felt, and a couple of levels up really from from what City were capable of on the day. Yeah, definitely. You saw that that last Jenny Hermoso goal, um, kind of uh, that build up. It came from the right wing into the middle, one two touch. Jenny Hermoso threaded a brilliant ball through to Alexia Puteas, who was had no one on her. She had about three seconds to think, and she shot and it hit the post, and then. Jenny Hermoso moved into the space that was created and she got first touch goal off. Um, but, you know, although Barcelona were were dominant, dominant, they still showed a lot of weaknesses. And that's, if you look, if you talk to a lot of people who watch Barcelona on, on the regular, they are worried about the defense because the defense isn't always as good as you want it to be, as good as you expect from a team who has scored 99 goals and has only conceded three. So, Abdullah, what did you see as Barcelona's biggest weakness yesterday, where City could have potentially hurt them? I think I think you you, know, you nailed it over there. It's, it's their defense, right? I mean, you can't really fault their midfield, and then the front three, especially the players on the bench, they've they're just really really good. I think one area I think that City could take advantage of, and it's more City have to be on it than it's a Barcelona weakness, is when they're playing out from the back, I think they need to press them. Like the way Barcelona were pressing City's defense, they were almost swarming them into like three, four players at a time. I think City needed to do the same thing. I, I felt like they stood off them a bit too much. They gave them a little bit too much respect coming up from the back. I think if they put a little bit more pressure on the center backs and I think isolate the fullbacks, maybe not Terry on, but I think Leila on the left side at left back, I think if they can really, because she's a really good going forward, but I think there is space behind her and you need to test her defensively. I think that left back area for Barcelona is, is, is one where I think if Chloe Kelly can get in behind and maybe even Lucy Brown's kind of putting up the pressure, because one thing I think Barcelona did really well was pin the two fullbacks back. Obviously, Esme Morgan is not a naturally attacking player, but Lucy Brown's was as defensive as I've seen her in, in, basically all season. She was nullified. But I think if they can, if they can really counter counteract and really put pressure and isolate into into the fullbacks when they do build up, I think they can really get you know counter press over there and 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 get across and and score from there. I think that's that for me. That's the only area I can see where really you know City can profit. Jesse, what are your thoughts on that? Where can City do better in the second leg? Yeah, I mean Barcelona's defense had looked ragged, which I thought was a bit of a 
an overstatement, but there was, de- you know, definitely the clearly when hemp was making runs, she was causing the massive problems, you know, and pace on either wing. It just felt like because I think Mewis in particular, who they so often look to play the ball through, basically just felt like she was out the game, that they were really struggling, obviously, to get the ball into the feet. But then you saw them trying to play these long balls over to the top to to players who who want the ball on the floor. So I think if they are going to get back into this game, they, you know, somehow need to... You know, with the Muir's thing, it's bizarre. Like, she's a big, strong, like, confident World Cup winning player. Like, I don't really understand what happened there. But you do think, well, if she plays at her usual level, then that's something they should be able to move the ball a lot quicker on. And, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of people have maybe pointed to the Steph Horton missing thing. But I would say that arguably Dahl Kemper and Greenwood would be my preferred centre-back pairing at City anyway. But their patterns of play, they weren't as like tuned into as a result of having that defensive change. And I wonder if that is what slowed them down, basically. Yeah, and, and touching on Mewis there, I think one of my biggest concerns is that was that Barcelona didn't have a tall enough player to defend Mewis on set pieces, on corner kicks. And I, I really was expecting Sam Mewis to at least get a header in there somewhere because of that that deficiency. I think uh, Mapi Leon is 1.7 metres, whereas Samuels is 1.8. I mean, you know, that's a clear advantage that you should probably exploit. But last question for you, Michael. Looking on to the second leg, Gareth Taylor very bluntly said, it's not a tough task to come back from a 3-0 death <laughs> against Barcelona. And I saw that quote and I was, I just questioned, I was like, was he at the same game that everybody saw today? I mean, to, to bluntly say it's not a tough task to come up against a side that you were just outplayed by. What are your thoughts on that? And after seeing this first leg, what are you expecting from a second leg? Yeah, I did see that. I I, I couldn't work out what he meant. That was a strange one. I mean... I just think the lack of an away goal means means it's probably over. I mean, if this had been 3-1, I think it would be game on, really, because I, I think City can score goals. I, I thought, you know, to, to say again, I thought Hemp was... You could even make a case for her being the best player, I thought, just because she was just constantly, constantly dribbling forward and creating things, obviously won the penalty. But yeah, I think the lack of away goal means that it's going to be a real uphill task. I, I'd be surprised if City kept a clean sheet in the return game. I think City will, will will try and dominate when they'll try and take the game to Barcelona. But I do worry about how that will leave them with the you know the defensive line getting exposed. And that's another thing I thought there was a big difference at. You know, Barcelona continually got runners in behind, whereas at the other end, Barcelona's offside trap, which is I think it was nine times constantly called. City yeah, offside. Nine, nine times offside called out for City. And I must say, I really enjoyed that. I mean, as someone who. Obviously, my job job is covering um, men's football more than women's football. You don't really see the flight going up that much because of VAR, because they let it run through and blah, blah, blah. So actually, just to see a really effective offside trap, once every 10 minutes, they were just stepping up, stopping playing, obviously get possession of the ball. I just made me yearn for (laughs) great offside traps, which I know is really lame. But um, yeah, I, I, I I think it's tie over really, isn't it? I think it's 5% chance or something for City. But um, obviously, a big lesson for them. And to be fair, I think if you if you replayed that game again, maybe City would come out of it better, just because you know the, the difference between scoring a away goal and not scoring a away goal is just so big. And 
lastly, I, I hope that Chloe Kelly doesn't change her penalty taking technique because I really love it. And it's basically been very effective so far, hasn't it? I think that's the first one I've seen in minutes. So, uh, yeah, I hope she doesn't change that. I hope she doesn't get taken off penalties. I think you're one of the few that actually likes your penalty taking technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird, but I just, you know, whatever works for you. I like the fact that she's unashamedly doing something that looks so crazy, but. Yeah, it wasn't even that much of a bad penalty, was it? No, it wasn't bad. Great save, really. Yeah, it was that. And what I love about these run-ups is that the psychology aspect behind it, a lot of players do it because it's supposed to kind of trigger something in your brain um, to do something that you've done so repeatedly, such as taking a penalty kick. Um, so the the psychological, you know, aspect of it is really interesting. But whatever the player has come up with, that's a whole another story. But thank you so much for joining us today, Michael, on the podcast. Make sure you follow Michael Cox on Twitter and to read all his contents brilliantly uploaded on The Athletic UK and definitely get one of his books if you enjoyed these types of conversations. Again, uh, Zonal Marking and The Mixer. And thank you again, Michael. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. I did. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. but that doesn't tell the story of the match. Wolfsburg dominated the first half in attack, getting many, many chances and even hitting the world broke. And Chelsea were particularly lucky to go into halftime still nil-nil. But all it took was a moment of brilliance. No surprise there. And just like that, Sam Kerr smashed home the opener just 10 minutes into the second half. And then again, 10 more minutes later, the narrative that everybody was waiting for, Pernille Harder scoring against Wolfsburg in the Champions League. Just after that, again, in, in successive, you know, in successive moments, Dominic Janssen got a crucial away goal from the penalty spot. She she smashed that well out of Berger's reach. You know, Anne-Katrine Berger had a killer of a night, but there was no way that she was saving that that Dominic Janssen penalty. And even though it's a win, Jesse, PTSD is still there, isn't it? What are your thoughts on this match? Yeah, this one was stressful. Although I will say, I do feel slightly sorry for Chelsea because this was the first time they've beaten Wolfsburg on their seventh attempt. And all anyone could talk about is how rubbish Chelsea were. (laughs) But yeah, it it was very stressful. I saw the XG today. Wolfsburg's XG was 3.9 to Chelsea's 0.65, which tells you just how much Wolfsburg dominated and... I don't know what kind of magic Emma Hayes has done for her side in the Champions League this year. But oh my gosh, this team is very, very lucky. Chelsea just looked so off the pace. Like, I don't know if this is slightly my bias and I'll be interested to hear what you guys thought. But I thought Wolfsburg were really good. But I thought Chelsea were kind of their own downfall for lots of parts of this match, you know, Millie Bright was making lots of strange mistakes. We got um, Millie Bright when she plays for England rather than Millie Bright when she normally plays for Chelsea, I think, yesterday. Magda Eriksson, she wasn't like making mistakes so much, but her passing was just like really poor and she struggled to help Chelsea get any kind of fluidity. Um, I thought the tracking back of the midfielders was also pretty awful uh, both Leupoltz and G were just seemed to have like no awareness of who they were supposed to be following and yeah just overall it, it was absolutely chaotic I mean I thought I thought Sam Kerr had an amazing game and you know I think looking at the game as a whole and the way it seemed like Chelsea wanted to play 
it felt like probably in an ideal scenario, Emma Hayes would maybe have started Beth England to have some a central figure to actually be able to hold up the ball. But I thought Sam Kerr did a pretty good job in a in that kind of role, which isn't something you would think she would be good at. But I thought she used her physicality really well, and her goal from such a tight angle was was really impressive. And I think it was really good to see because I think Sam Kerr has scored a lot of goals this season, but I think lots of those goals have been put on a plate for her. And whilst it, you know, that it's good for her to be in those positions to score them, it felt like this was a really important moment to score and a goal that was not easy to take. So I thought that was really good to see from her. That is true. Emma Hayes did mention after the game that this is perhaps the best game that she's seen Sam Kerr play in a Chelsea's shirt. And I think maybe a lot could could agree on that despite Chelsea's, you know, poor performance in the first half specifically. And and touching on that, you know, in the first half, it seemed like Chelsea were nervous. They were shaky. They were dodgy. You know, Millie Bright had that header backwards that just did not go to plan. And, and luckily, um, I think it was Fridonila uh, Rolfo who missed that. Uh, Akintrine Berger came up with a big save, a lucky save at that. You know, it was brilliant, but it was lucky. And, and Millie Bright was lucky that they didn't capitalize on that because I think that that would have changed the game a lot. Sam Kerr scoring in, in the second half maybe wouldn't happen if, if Chelsea didn't have that confidence of the game still being nil-nil. Abdullah, what did Wolfsburg do so well here? Right. I think Wolfsburg, well, like, let's be real, I don't think anybody was expecting this Wolfsburg team to kind of show up and do the things that they did. I know Emma Hay said after the game that she was expecting an aggressive team and someone who's had the experience and coming in, but you know, after the season that they've had and the, and the storylines that we've talked about, you know, in previous episodes about coaches leaving, players not signing new contracts, you know, almost, they were like almost in disarray, Bayern Munich running away with the league. You'd, you you know, you'd have forgiven Wolfsburg for almost turning over and, and, and losing, you know, 2-3-0 on the night. But credit to them, they came through flying. I think what they did extremely well was kind of exploit the spaces in behind the two fullbacks. And we haven't really seen anybody test Chelsea's fullbacks to that extent. John Anderson and Marmiel and to some extent Neem Charles in the games that she's played they've been pretty defensively solid and Chelsea have usually had a plan where they've had the centre-backs cover for them you've had Leupold drop in to make up a back three so that the centre-backs can push out wide and, and kind of cover the spaces in behind but I think it's I, I think I think what really helped was Svenja Huth kind of making those off the ball runs into the channels. I think that played a huge role because then it kind of put with the disarray that the two center backs were having, it kind of put the fullback into a position where what do I do? Do I mark the, the runner or do I mark the winger? And then you're there. Then they were kind of like caught in two minds. And then just every time I, I don't think I've ever seen Jan Anderson get so overloaded and so caught out of position as much as, you know, as much as this game. Neem Charles still did pretty decent, but I think she was a victim of the defense failing next to her. I don't think there's much she could have done, especially because she's not a natural right back. And that yellow card was, I mean, we got to put it out there, was ridiculous. That was not a yellow card in any way, shape or form. Clean, wins the ball, studs it down, and now she misses the next leg for absolutely a poor refereeing decision. I'm surprised they couldn't go back to VAR and then rescind that yellow card. I wish they, I wish they did that. But yeah, for me, it was the wide areas were absolutely key. And I felt, and I also felt like the midfield, Chelsea's midfield just didn't work. It, they just, I, I don't know. It's as if they never played with each other. I know they played a sort of like a four-four-two diamond again. But I feel like if you're gonna play that kind of system, you need kind of box-to-box midfielders on the sides. You have Leupold, who's good. Ingle was perfect for that system. But then the other two needed to work a little bit more. I don't think they expected to have. Wolfsburg to have as much as the ball as they did. Um, so I think that played into the hands as well. But yeah, that's those kind of my thoughts on 
what Wolfsburg did well. Yeah, Emma Hayes mentioned in the, in the pre-match press conferences that and she mentioned VAR and, and she kind of made a side comment being like, thank God we don't have it. And maybe, you know, perhaps she she might have hoped for, for VAR in this occasion because rightfully so, Neve Charles was given a yellow card for for nothing, really. You know, she got there first, she got the ball. The player didn't even go down that, that aggressively. I don't know why, what prompted the ref to make that a yellow and now a big loss for Chelsea who already have Marin mailed it out. Now they have Neve Charles out and now Hannah Blundell is the one that's going to have to step up to that. And she hasn't been playing that much for Chelsea. So that's another barrier that, that Chelsea have to overcome now. But having Rolfo and, and Huth, as you mentioned, Abdullah, that was huge for Wolfsburg. You know, not a lot of us expected Rolfo, for example, to start both of them to start together. And though they didn't score, they unleashed havoc on the Chelsea defense. They exploited its places. They made Chelsea, the Chelsea defense look bad. And that doesn't happen often. That hasn't happened in a long time. But Jesse... How efficiently or inefficiently do you think Chelsea dealt with them? Yeah, I thought it was really poor, to be honest, because also it felt like they were very fast and they were picking up good pockets of space and they were moving quickly. But so much of it just felt like, and obviously this is kind of easy, like in hindsight, and I've kind of watched a game again, so you, you know how things are going to go. So just take this with a pinch of salt. But it felt like lots of these runs were like quite similar. They were like doing similar moves again and again. And I thought it was really interesting how much Wolfsburg actually, particularly in that second half, looked to attack down the right-hand side much more. In the first half, it felt like they were, you know, pinging the ball across the field or kind of equally going down the left or the right. But in the second half, it felt like they were much more concentrated on the right-hand side. And to me, I just felt like that, that was because they knew that because G wasn't, in particular, wasn't tracking back, that they could overload Anderson there. And I was really surprised that, Emma Hayes didn't bring on Erin Cuthbert until like the 75th minute because for me that was exactly the kind of player that Chelsea needed there they needed you know she's so young like she's she's an amazing player but she isn't the kind of person who's going to be like tracking back and putting in like loads of last ditch tackles at all that that is where you want like an Erin Cuthbert or even a Jesse Fleming in that position and I was really surprised that Emma Hayes didn't seek to make that change because it just felt like Wolfsburg were doing the same thing again and again and yeah basically overloading John Anson and then being able to get to the byline and like put a cross in and, and be a real threat. Yeah, Emma Hayes did mention after the match that once Wolfsburg scored, she had to stop whatever tactically she was planning. She said it was disappointing that she couldn't put on her, her tactical changes uh, right before Wolfsburg scored. So I'm, I'm wondering, because I do agree that I think Aaron Cuthbert could have made a big difference if she was put on a lot earlier. Um, I think Chelsea were, were missing that, that energy and a person who can who's really good at getting the ball and taking the ball and, and keeping possession of the ball, especially when Chelsea needed it most. But Abdullah, you know, after this this first leg, you know, we saw Chelsea not at their best for a first time in a very long time. And we saw Wolfsburg at their best potentially in the first time in a very long time. And they still didn't manage to score or win the game. So what are you expecting from the second leg? I'm expecting more of the same from Wolfsburg. I think Chelsea will step up their game. I think they will... Whether they underestimated Wolfsburg or not, I don't know. But even if they had a shred of doubt of whether Wolfsburg would play well or not, that is well and truly gone. I think they will take this more seriously than they did the first leg. Not that they didn't take the first leg seriously. And I think, but I think Wolfsburg will will be spurred on by this. I think they they they'll take so much heart from the fact that they went up against the you know the WSL champions, the potential favorites for the Champions League, and that kind of outplayed them. You know, for the majority of the game. And I think a lot of their goals were. I mean, a lot of their misses. Obviously, 
and Katrenberger, hands down, was the key difference here. But I think on any other day, I think Wolfsburg scored those chances. And I think it was just down to some excellent goalkeeping and just poor luck on Wolfsburg's side that they just couldn't get the early goals. Pop had chances, you know, uh, Payor had chances. They all had chances. because like It was just unlucky day in front of goal for them in, in some cases. Some was just incredible goalkeeping. I think more of the same. I think Wolfsburg have nothing to lose here. They've just got to go. They've got to do more of the same. They've got a game plan now that they know that will hurt Chelsea. Now, and just kind of going back to Jesse's point where we were talking about what I was talking about earlier. Getting those box-to-box midfielders in a, in a diamond midfield, you need them. Cuthbert and Fleming would be perfect with Leupold's and Ingle, I think, just because then you've got people who can hold the ball, people who can pass the ball, and then people who can run around and get the ball back for you. They Like, Cuthbert just brought so much energy the minute she came on. There was, a, there was such, such an immediate difference to the way they played in midfield, and they needed that earlier. She's the kind of players, when you have possession and you've got a team who's not who's not going to press you so much and you got space in midfield, absolutely fantastic player. Or you play G at the tip of the midfield where Panela Harder plays, obviously you're not going to drop harder. But those that's for me where you play G and that's where she's most effective. Game needed Aaron Cuthbert. I, I think she should have come on at halftime. It should have been a halftime change. Uh, I totally agree with what you guys were saying. And uh, yeah, that's, I expect more of the same from Wolfsburg. It's not, a, it's not an easy ride. And Jesse, similar question to you. What are you expecting from the second leg? But more importantly, what do you want to see from Chelsea, from your perspective, in a second leg that isn't one yet? You know, it is a 2-1 win. And I think a lot of people are, are taking it well, good that, that they're not kind of celebrating this just yet. You know, there is just halfway there and, and Wolfsburg do have that big away goal. All they need is a one nil win, which they prove that they're well capable of of doing. But Jesse, what do you want to see more of and, and what are you expecting from Chelsea from Mosberg in that second leg? Yeah, I mean I think what I would like to see more of is I thought Wolfsburg were very clever in their pressing strategy in that they kind of rotated sitting off Chelsea at points. And then kind of coming back and, and pressing them. And it felt like because Bright and Ericsson were quite nervous anyway, that that change in pressing also wasn't allowing them to settle into what they were doing, which meant that also when Wolfsburg was sitting off them, neither Bright nor Ericsson really seemed to want to move forward with the ball. And I think it's really telling that actually when they did move forward with the ball, you know, Magda Ericsson starts Chelsea's first goal. And also there's a point where Millie Bright in the first half moves forward with the ball and creates like one of Chelsea's better opportunities in that half. So what I would like to see is Bright and Ericsson just kind of being a bit more confident in Chelsea's normal game plan, which is like, we're going to step forward and narrow the space to, to play through because that was the problem was it felt like they were sitting back so far that Chelsea was so stretched. And I actually thought that the front three, basically, as it was, was incredibly flat of Kirby Kern harder compared to, yeah, when normally they may be playing a bit more of a diamond thing. I felt like this actually looked more like a 4-3-3 at points. I don't know if that was just intentional or just like out of fear, but I would like to see someone dropping back more because it felt like at points Harder was doing it, at points Kirby was doing it, Kerr was kind of staying up a bit more, but that kind of rotation didn't necessarily feel planned in the way that it normally does with Chelsea. And as a result, it didn't really feel like there were logical ways for Chelsea to build up from the back. So I think I, yeah, I'd like to see Ericsson and Bright step up more and be a bit braver in possession and potentially maybe Harder being told to pull back a bit more than it felt like she was. The wor- My worry is that that's kind of what I wanted from the second leg against Atletico, and we didn't get it. Chelsea looked very similar to how they looked against Wolfsburg, I think. And it's really strange to me because I know I mentioned in Man City that, you know, like it feels like Man City's team maybe are a bit young. They don't really have the experience in this competition, but this Chelsea team has kind of 
been there and done it in the Champions League. Yes, they've not caught all the way to the final, but like they've pushed Leon pretty close in semi-finals. You know, they play in this competition before. And this team is very similar to that team from two years ago. And I don't know what's going on, but it feels like they're playing as if they've never played in this competition before. And I, I don't really get it. It is true. They, they've, I think they got really lucky in this first leg that Wolfsburg managed to lose it. I think they hurt themselves on that. I don't think it was more of, of Chelsea playing a good game against Wolfsburg. I think Wolfsburg hurt themselves and not finishing their chances in the first half. But we'll go on, we'll move on to, to another match that perhaps is done and dusted, I would say. Um, you know, maybe maybe not. But given the history and given the big task that is at hand in the second leg, PSG Lyon, one of the most anticipated matches. And, you know, we were all anticipating it, especially after last week, the league match between these two was postponed because of positive COVID-19 cases in, in the PSG squad. But this was arguably one of the most unexciting matches of the day, especially after Barcelona, Man City, and then Chelsea Wolfsburg. Lyon got a big away result and they got it over a very very dodgy penalty call Eden Paredes was trying to clear the ball and it seemed to have hit Formiga's arm unclear because the angles is, is, is really and bad but even at that that was a bad call anyway but it seemed like she was outside of the box so it was never supposed to be a penalty call anyway and voila you know Wendy Renard smashed home the goal and c'est la vie. <laughs> Lyon win over a penalty. And, you know, that's, it's an old story by now, but it managed to to be a nil-nil game until that, until that moment. And it, and I think it really reflected that scoreline, you know, these two sides have played together, have played against each other for so long now that it seems like they're so good at playing each other that it's always either a draw or it's a really close scoreline. You know, PSG won earlier in the season just by a marginal 1-0 scoreline, just like this one. It's not a new story that these games are are, are so close. Um, but, you know, perhaps maybe because it's Champions League, we were expecting a bit more spice. But Abdullah, based on their positions in the league, the fact that their league match was postponed last week and Leon weren't too happy about that. This was supposed to be a really, really entertaining and big match. Um, what do you think of this? You know... To some extent, this is the kind of game that Lyon and PSG, I think they've faced each other so many times now over the last couple of seasons that they just know each other so well that they know what their strengths and weaknesses are. And I think they respect each other in that in that sense. And you know what? Yeah, yeah. I think I think people were expecting a lot more of a exciting game. And I, I but I think it ended up being more of a, a tactical battle between two teams who just know each other so well that they're just going to nullify each other at their strongest point, which obviously then makes it a little bit more dull. However, I felt like the first half was a bit like really slow. I think Lyon were just really slow out of the gates. Marjan had one of the worst halves I've ever seen she's ever played uh and then kind of going into the second half it was i i was kind of thinking okay because i think psg started to grow in the game as the second half kind of wore on katoto kept dropping into these pockets of space on the right side kind of trying to overload and take take advantage of the spaces behind the fullback kind of similar to what wolfsburg did to, to chelsea um behind karchawi and carpenter however i think one smart thing that leon did 
that I, I picked out was they switched formations uh, with a couple of changes. They brought on Eugenie Le Sommer and they brought on Melvin Millard and they switched to a 4-4-2 diamond. Now, in I'd never thought about it before, but after I saw it, I was like, it was a really smart move just because Lyon's fullbacks are such attacking fullbacks. And I mean, they're better going forward. And this formation kind of allows them to push forward. And when you've got, and then in, in midfield, when they brought on Demars as well, I think Demars was a huge, huge move. I think that was kind of the substitution of the game from a defensive point of view for me because she kind of changed the complexion of the game. Her dropping into the base of midfield allowed Amadine Henri the freedom to push forward without having to worry because when they're playing a 4-2-3-1 or, or, or you know, that, that sort of formation, Henri has to sit next to Kumagai and then they can't really do much because then Marijan's in front of them. So they've got to protect the defense. But when you switch this 4-4-2 diamond, Damaris is a, such a disciplined player and we all, we've all seen her from playing her time playing at Everton. I, I She just sat in front of that defense, so mobile, and just protected them so well that Henri just kind of flew forward, did her thing. And then you could start seeing... Lyon getting a little bit more for attacking momentum. Millard was a hugely impressive playing at the striker position. Kind of her movement was amazing. Lissomer brought her experience around and her movement. And it was obviously her shot that, you know, won the penalty, dubious or as, as much as it was. So I think that change to that formation change was actually a really, really big, um, big key. And I don't think it's something that they've, they've not done that much. And I think it, it, it paid off and they've got the players to play that position. I think Nikita Paris has been really good this season. She's got double digits and goals and her movement has been one. And she's kind of deputized for Ada Hagerberg really, really well. So, um, you know, she's another one who I think is, has, has done well as well for them. Because obviously we've seen players that come to Lyon, if they don't do well in their first season, they're usually shipped out or they leave in the second season. I mean, Alex Greenwood, just an example, played decently well, but really didn't fit into the whole ethos and ecosystem of the club. And, you know, kind of then obviously went back to, the, to Mad City and now we're seeing her do well over here. So yeah, that's kind of my overall thoughts on the game and kind of where it went. And, and PSG have a chance. I, it's not over. I mean, I think while they have the they don't have the away goal, PSG have a chance. And you've got Katoto up front, who's got like averaging like 25 to 30 goals a season for the last three seasons, arguably the best striker in the world right now you can't really rule them out Dabritz for me is one of the most underrated midfielders in world football along with Alexi Puchales and we've had this conversation before so yeah I think they've got the tools for it it's just uh, it's going to be a close one I can't even call it next week yeah Dabritz did it particularly well in exploiting a lot of the spaces in the midfield uh, she got the ball and she carried the ball and drove in the center of the midfield quite often. Um, but, you know, Melanie Malad, she's one of the most exciting young players at the moment. And for Leon to to kind of flex and put her on at the end of the match to, to make a huge difference is, is huge. And PSG, as you mentioned, it, it was kind of a surprise to me to not see Sandy Baltimore start because she has been playing so well with Maria Antoinette Catoto, you know, with Diani as well. Those three are so good together. And we saw that, you know, we mentioned that in the last pod as well, you know, it's very predictable sometimes. Sandy Baltimore gets the, the ball, she crosses it in, Katoto is is anywhere in the box and she's going to finish first time. You know, there's no doubt about that. So when I didn't, when I saw Sandy Baltimore wasn't starting, you know, I was a bit surprised because Diani and, and Katoto were both starting as well. Jesse, like we mentioned, you know, a lot of these games are so marginal wins or, or they end in a draw because these two sides know each other so, so well. It's really hard to surprise each other. And it's really hard to play a different kind of football when when you know each other so well, you know, you know your strengths, you know your weaknesses, you know every possible option that you've tried to happen before and, you, and you've played against it. But Abdullah says that maybe PSG can get back, but it is a huge ask. Um, you know, it's not, and it, it's, it's way beyond the actual football and it's way beyond 
on the tactics. You know, Leon can play the worst football ever, but somehow they still manage to win, whether it be a dodgy penalty call or, or a fluke of a goal, you know, they get the wins somehow. It's unexplicable sometimes. Jesse, do you think PSG have what it takes to get at least two goals against Lyon next week? Yeah, I thought I'd just have a look and see at how often teams get two goals against Lyon. So actually Juventus did it in December in that round of 32 game. So it's been done quite recently. But the time before that was September 2017. It was a Parisian team but it wasn't PSG, it was Paris FC, and it was in a 9-2 loss. Context. (laughs) (laughs) Context matters in that game. Uh, Yeah, um, both those games where teams have scored two against Lyon, Lyon have still won. I mean, I do think PSG can do it, I thought in the first half, yeah, they were PSG were much a better side. And I was surprised that Sandy Baltimore wasn't, wasn't starting, but I was actually really impressed with Ramona Backman. And I thought what she allowed PSG to do was she was really willing to take that step back into midfield and create that space for Sarah Debritz in front of her. And I thought those two worked really well together. And I was really impressed because obviously Ramona Backman kind of came from Chelsea where her career had sort of like fizzled out. And the PSG move seemed a bit strange to me. I was like, oh, are you just going to go and like sit on the bench at another like very big team, but like basically play like a similar kind of role. But she seems to have like settled in really well there. And I thought this was a really good game for her. I felt like one... Diani went off though PSG like lost a lot of their spot and I do think when they really have to go for it next week maybe starting that favoured front three makes sense because I thought Katoto and Diani for speed just had everything over that Leon defence and I think if they are going to do it they just need to like go for it and go all guns blazing and that's probably the risk as from those score lines I've just said is that when teams try and do that maybe you open yourself up so much that Leon find it easy to score more against you I don't know I hope so because I really like this PSG team it, it might be. It is true. You know, I think I we have no doubt in our mind of of that PSG are capable. It's just yeah. It's just a matter of you know how Lyon are gonna reply. How are they gonna react? Because you know, should PSG score two goals, they're gonna score nine back, for example. And and I think it's mostly about that. But third match of the day was Bayern Munich versus Rosengard, and Bayern Munich unsurprisingly really cruised through a. 3-0 victory over Rosengard. And we didn't see a lot of Byron strengths maybe as much as we expected. There was a lot of takeaways and Rosengard, I think, did well to stop a lot of, a lot of Byron's attacks and, and strengths. But, you know, at the end of the day, as we mentioned previously, you know, Bayern Munich are at the top of their game right now. And realistically, I don't. there was never any stopping them against Rosengard who aren't used to this level of, of, of football, perhaps, to put it in, and for the lack of a better phrase, you know they're not used to playing a team as good as as Bayern Munich, especially since they're they're not in season at the moment. They they're only playing friendlies, they're only playing you know Champions League football. They they haven't gotten that ability to be in a rhythm, to be informed, to to have that consistent game time that perhaps they needed to go up against a team like Bayern Munich. Um, but we saw that yesterday, and and the first goal was a solo effort. Um, it was brilliant. Damen drove down the center of the midfield and she got to the box and she shot and there was like five defenders in front of her. You know, the second goal is also a testament to to the quality of Bayern Munich. It was a, a counterattack. It was from a Rosengard piece. You know, uh, Berenstein got the ball, drove down and then passed it off to Clara Bull and Clara Bull finished it brilliantly. 
um, that's a big testament. That was what we mentioned, you know, perhaps that Chelsea do, you know, in two, three touches, they're, they're in front of goal and they're capitalizing on the chances. Jesse, what were your general thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I thought Bayern were as impressive as they needed to be. I really got the impression that they didn't want to overexert themselves. It felt like they were pretty much in control this entire game. I was really impressed with Berenstein. I thought she was really, really good. And she's a player who I feel like we don't really talk about that much when it comes to this Bayern Munich team, but she was someone who really stood out to me when I was watching this. I thought the other thing that Bayern did very well was they have this kind of hypnotic ability to slow the game down and then speed it up at a click of the fingers and just felt like Rosengard couldn't deal with those changes of pace. It will be interesting to see what that looks like maybe against a better team who's not going to let you hold onto the ball when you choose to slow it down. But I thought their ability to change pace like that was something that was really interesting and really impressive. But yeah, it it just felt like in this game that Bayern kind of knew from very, you know, they scored quite early on and then they just felt like super comfortable and didn't really feel the need to push them. They weren't really forced to push themselves much more across the 90. I think that sums it up well. I think comfortable and, and perhaps confident is a good word for Bayern Munich. And I think, you know, maybe it is a, a German approach of being more strict in terms of saving themselves sort of say for the second leg, you know, it is very apparent that they're more likely to to advance that semifinal, you know, are they saving the best for that? Maybe we were expecting a bigger scoreline. Maybe we're expecting uh, Rosengard to do a bit better. Maybe we were expecting a lot of different things from this match. And I personally don't think it played out the way I expected it to do. Expecting a scoreline maybe closer to a 5-2 scoreline, for example. Abdullah, Rosengard played well, but were you expecting maybe a little bit more from this Bayern Munich side? Yeah, I think so. I think kind of Jesse summed it up well. Like, I just felt like they got the goal and they were just like, well, we'll just cruise this. And I think a 3-0 win for them cruise control almost was just kind of them saying all right we'll conserve some energy it's a long season they're going to need to exert more energy in the semi-final which they most likely look like they're going to advance to and whether it's against Wolfsburg or whether it's against Chelsea whoever they end up facing it's going to need a lot of energy so I think for them it's just it's it's almost a smart move preserve the energy if you need to put the game out of sight early in the second leg and, and just kind of go from there Berenstein again to me like Jess said I think is a player that has kind of flown under the radar for the last couple of seasons and I think another the thing is to mention is they lost Melanie Leupold's in the summer, uh, but they've gotten better over last season. That's that's kind of a weird way to put it. Um, and I think players like you know Cindy Lawman, you know, they've stepped up and you know it's kind of filled that void. And not to not to forget, Bayern were close to beating PS uh, Lyon last year in the last season Champions League. They were they were pretty good for their money and uh, you know it was it was a pretty tight affair so if we get anywhere near close to that sort of Bayern Munich in the next round I think I think whoever faces them is going to be in for, for a tough time and it's, it's almost like you can look at any one of these teams now after these first leg showings and just go and say I can see any single one of them winning it on their day they're, they're all so good in, the, in, in that regard yeah and, and you mentioned Sydney Lohman there I think she's another incredibly underrated young talent you know she's only 20 years old and she is flying in that Bayern Munich side you know as you mentioned you know Melanie Lopez was a huge loss for Bayern Munich but here you have a 20 year old midfielder who has stepped up into a role and has played so many different roles for Bayern Munich I've seen over the over the season so far so I think Sydney Lohman is is 
another one to watch of this pod. I think we're going to make a top 50 list at the end of the season. I think we definitely need to after after we endorse so many players on this pod. Bayern Munich have to conserve their 3-0 win to advance to the semis. And this is all being played on Wednesday, except for Bayern Munich Rosengard that is being played on the Thursday. We will have another pod to analyze the second legs because anything can happen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Box to Box WSL. Make sure you're following the official Twitter account where you can see all of our handles and keep up to date with all the information up and updates about the pod. We'll see you on, on our next episode and thank you everyone for listening. Bye guys. Okay, thank you.